An interesting study that was done in 2007 looked at getting people to actually drink water on empty stomachs. In other words, between the meals, they had them drinking, you know, 500 ml bottles. And they had them drinking several of these through the day. And they actually measured, yeah, good job. They actually measured the, the thermic effect because water, first of all, if it's drunk at a, at a slightly cooler temperature, energy has to be expended to warm that, 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 that fluid back up. But more importantly, water dilutes your blood. And so your body has to actually initiate a system of reabsorbing filtrate to reestablish blood concentration. And when they extrapolated that out to the year, these researchers found that it amounted to a total of about five pounds of energy in a year. So drinking that, you know, two to three of those bottles in a daily basis between meals, yes, it does have an effect on helping control your appetite and things of that nature. It's also important for hydration, which most of us are underhydrated, but it can have a little bit of a caloric effect. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you heard is my guest for this episode and my very good friend, Professor Fabio Camana from San Diego State University. Now, before I go into the full introduction for Fabio and this episode, I need to let you know that this is a flashback. I'm doing a rerun. Now, this time of year, it can be kind of challenging to book guests. Everybody has a lot going on, especially, I mean, we, we know the challenges of 2020. And so what I didn't want to do was to try to book guests in late November, early December of the year. I just want to give people a little bit of space. And originally... I mean, come on, like a lot of us, I grew up in the 80s, and I grew up watching 80s sitcoms. And what happened every year around Christmas with 80s sitcoms? 80s sitcoms would do the flashback show. They would do the clip show. And that was my original intent for for December. I wanted to do a couple clip shows of pulling in clips from various interviews that I've done over the last few years of doing the podcast. But as I started looking at at the logistics of going through and doing all that editing, I made the decision, I'm just going to run a couple full episodes. But these, the, the, the episodes I'm going to be running this, this month are really, they're great interviews I did with some leaders in our industry, but before the podcast started becoming more popular. And I, I really, I want to say thank you. I really mean that. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the All About Fitness podcast. The last couple months, the numbers have been growing and growing, and, and that means that you're getting something out of this podcast. If you are, please just take a moment and give it a review. You know how this works. Other people, the reviews push it up in the rankings. And I want to give a big shout out to Refinery29. Refinery29 is a blog, and they recognize All About Fitness as one of the top health and fitness podcasts that you should be listening to. And since you're, you're here, you're already doing that, so congratulations. But I want to say thank you to Refinery29. On that note, this episode is a great conversation with Fabio. I've known Fabio for a number of years. We work together at the American Council on Exercise. We've done some consulting work together. We now do a little bit of consulting work together with NASM. That's an ACE, the American Council on Exercise, is one personal trainer certification. Now we work together doing some consulting with another personal trainer certification organization. And I really have to say that of all the people I've worked with in this industry, and I've worked with some really just amazing folks, Hands down, Fabio is by far just one of the smartest, one of the brightest, one of the most well-read individuals I've worked with. He always blows me away. His memory, his recall, his ability to synthesize information. And what we talk about today, and and really, you're going to get a lot out of this episode. And I'm, I'm doing this on purpose this time of year 
because a lot of us are getting ready to reset our fitness goals and recommit to fitness, right? We do that every January. I, I don't know about you. I, you know, I, I talked about this a while ago. I try to do my best to, to stay healthy and I stay active. And I've been working out throughout the holiday season from Halloween on. But, you know, we do. There are a lot of extra calories floating around. Well, on this episode, we talk about how your body burns fat, how your body metabolizes fat into energy. And it really is a fascinating conversation. We talk about some of the hormones that your body uses to, to, burn, to burn fat. And Fabio goes into some information that you should know about exercise, nutrition, that can really help you optimize fat burning. Now, on that note, I've been promoting my HIT class. I'm still doing HIT through homeroomfit.com. HIT is high-intensity interval training. I'm doing it on Wednesdays and Fridays, HIT at home. It's a Zoom class. I, I broadcast it out from my living room. It's a great 30-minute workout. And HIT is very effective for burning energy. And I know some people might hear high-intensity interval training and think it might be really hard. Well, here's how I structure the HIT class. We do a warm-up of about five to seven minutes. We move the whole body. We, we start with lower intensity and build up from there. So there's a five to seven minute warm up. Then I do about a four to six minute strength training. We usually do between three and four strength training exercises, but circuit training. We might do an AMRAP, we might do an EMOM. I organize it so we're moving constantly doing strength exercises for four to six minutes. Then we spend about four or five minutes doing core exercises. Sometimes the core exercises on the ground, sometimes they're standing up. And then we finish with about four to six minutes, sometimes seven minutes of really hard, high-intensity exercise. So in the 30-minute workout, you're moving the entire time. You really are. But we're really only pushing ourselves for that last maybe five to seven minutes. And I've been tracking, uh, I've been tracking the calories on my watch, on my Apple Watch, and I've been averaging myself between somewhere between about 9 and 11 or 9 and 12 calories a minute. So that's about 300 calories for a 30-minute workout. So if you ever want to join me for that, that's a great way. We're going to talk a little bit about the benefits of high-intensity interval training today. And I want you to understand that the benefits of HIT are not only during the workout, but after the workout as well, because your body expends energy to return back to the resting state. So if you want to put this in practice, I'm going to have a link down below in the show notes. It's Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 o'clock 12 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, 3 o'clock Eastern time. And there one or two people from the podcast have joined me, and it's been a lot of fun. I enjoy meeting you via Zoom and having you join me in Carlsbad. So please feel free to join me. It's a very evidence, very science-based workout, and I know you'll get a lot out of that. So that aside, there's my little pitch right there. Join me for the workout. I, this is going to be a great interview. I know it's a flashback, but the science is the science. The science does not change. Here we go with Professor Fabio Camana of the Exercise and Nutritional Sciences Program at San Diego State University talking about how our body burns fat. Uh, as you mentioned, obviously, I teach at San Diego State. I also run our fitness certificate program at UCSD. And then, as you know, you and I worked together at ACE for several years where we kind of were the, the, the brain trust behind the development of the IFT model. And... Uh, you know, obviously, since then, I've moved on to NASM. I've been with NASM since 2011. I kind of work in the capacity as kind of a, you know, faculty instructor for them. And then I do some consulting in the fitness industry, just like you do. So kind of keep myself one foot in academia, one foot in the fitness industry. And I think, uh, you know, it keeps me busy, keeps me out of trouble, and it keeps me connected with folks like you. 
No, it, well, I appreciate that, and, and I think what 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 I like about anytime we have a discussion is that you really you your knowledge of of the subject matter always blows me away. And just so people who are aware, they're listening. Fabio doesn't have a textbook in front of him. He doesn't have a list of notes in front of him. I don't think he has his <laughs> computer open. He is he's literally we're just having a discussion, and and what we're going to go into on fat metabolism is literally just he, he's a wealth of knowledge. And if we have a little bit of time, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Marvel universe and about Doctor Strange. Because besides knowing about physiology, Fabio is a, is a, has a sick, uh, sick uh, understanding of, of uh, the Marvel universe. But you calling but, me a nerd? I'm not calling you a nerd. I'm just calling you a very well. I'll take it. I'll call. I'm calling you a very well resourced, a very well read individual. Um, well, thank you very kindly. But but we're, I want to talk to you about fat metabolism and really kind of like fat loss and weight loss because obviously that's one of the most um, most common reasons why people exercise. And I think a lot of people. I don't know if it's misinformation from the general media. I don't know if it's misinformation from quote unquote gym experts or the gym myths, but I think a lot of people um, take um, an inefficient approach to fat loss or fat metabolism. In your opinion, what are the, some of the most common mistakes that people have or the common misperceptions about fat loss or about weight loss related to fat loss? Well, you know, Peter, I think, you know, you made great mention to, you know, some of the sources of misinformation and there's also misinformation in the research because as I said, you know, think of this as a puzzle that we're still trying to solve. We're, you know, as we've started to unravel the human genome, you know, we first discovered what we call the obesity gene, which was the FTO gene. And since then we've discovered a myriad of other genes that are involved in expressing, you know, different facets of obesity. And the reality is we don't really know. So given that the research is still kind of guessing, when I say guessing, they're not guessing, but they're still trying to figure out this puzzle. That has led to kind of a whole slew of, you know, misinformation out there, you know, based on maybe old or bad research, as well as what people looking to kind of make a quick dollar, you know, make a quick dime off of, uh, you know, exploiting people's, you know, vulnerability to, and, and kind of vanity, if you want to say. So some of the some of the quick to answer your question, some of the quick, uh, some of the, uh, the leading, and I'm not sure if this is an, a kind of comprehensive list, but it's an inclusive list. I would say some of the biggest myths out there, I, one of the ones that comes to mind right now is, you know, in order to lose weight, I got to eat less calories. And, you know, you have to understand that the body is an amazing machine in, when it comes to self-preservation. And, you know, you, all you got to do is go back to our ancestors to realize how they survived through those times. And we lived through periods of feast and famine. And so the body, you know, much like you would do in your car when you're running out of gas, is that you would drive conservatively. And so when your body senses that its energy reserves are being depleted, either because of the fact that you're exercising very hard and you haven't recovered or you're starving yourself, i.e. eating less low, low amounts of calories, then your body will go into a, a self-preservation state. In other words, you will burn less calories. And when you think about metabolism, the biggest piece of the pie of metabolism is what we call your resting metabolic rate. So that's the energy you expend just being alive. And that accounts for about 60 to 75% of all the energy we burn in a day. And so that's the, that's the engine that we want to keep revving. And the first thing that happens, you know, via a hormonal interface is if the body senses it's being starved because you've decided, hey, you know what, if eating 800 calories is, you know, what I need to do, well, that mindset will just force the body to start going to a preservation state where your metabolism will slow down. And this number, it can slow down by 20%. Doesn't seem like much on a daily basis, but you you aggregate that over a year. That could be you know to the total of about thirty to thirty-one pounds over a year. So that's probably one of the big misconceptions: is people feel like, oh, I have to, 
you know, starve myself. The other thing people oftentimes do is they think, I got to exercise hard. And the other misconception here is that if you look in the grand scheme of things, when you consider that on an average week, an American male today is eating over 17,500 calories in a week. The average American female is about 12,500 calories, just under that. Now, you think about that and you think about how many calories are you really expending in your workout? You know, forget the fact that you might be or feel entitled to a reward after your workout. But let's think about the average American in a workout, maybe three sessions a week. So 900 calories over the week. And then you think about your calories that you expend, uh, you consume in a week. And we're talking about 12,000 to 17,000. The question remains, what does exercise really chip away at? It's barely 10% of your calories. So the other myth is that if I exercise, the pounds will just fall off my body. There has to be a lifestyle change. There is nutritional aspect. There is certainly the exercise aspect. And I'm not trying to downplay exercise. It has a myriad of benefits. But exercise is the sole solution to weight loss. You've got one of two options. A, you're going to be you know, horribly sort of disappointed, number one. Or two, you're going to have to really train hard, fast, long, frequently. And you're probably going to have a bad exercise experience. You may even amount to overuse injuries. And down the road, especially as we get older and older, you and I know being Gen Xers, the body doesn't recover that well. So that kind of, you know, going to the gym and hitting it hard five, six days a week is not a sustainable solution. So the other myth out there is that I just need to exercise. Now, it has to be more. And we've started looking at what you do the other 16, 17 hours of the day. And that's really the game changer. That's where the battle of weight loss will be won. Excuse me. I know this is an exciting interview, but I'm going to break in for one moment and tell you about some exciting news. At the All About Fitness podcast, I am never going to put content behind a paywall. However, if you become a supporter of the podcast, you will get access to exclusive content that I am not going to make available anywhere else. So here's the deal. You can become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast by purchasing one of my ebooks, Dynamic Anatomy, Exercise for the Fountain of Youth, or Functional Core Training. Each ebook is $7, and if you purchase an ebook, you become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast. If you purchase a workout, I have a dumbbell strength training workout, a kettlebell training workout, and I have a functional core training workout. Each program is eight weeks long. It includes the workouts, includes metabolic conditioning, and they include active recovery workouts. It's a great deal. Each workout is $12. By purchasing a workout for $12, you become a supporter of the All About Fitness podcast. To become a super fan of All About Fitness, you purchase a bundle. I have different bundles available. I have bundles of eBooks. I have the Dynamic Anatomy ebook and webinar bundle. I have the Functional Core Training and Dynamic Anatomy ebook bundle. Bundles are $19. So those are the three price levels. You become a fan by purchasing an ebook for $7. You become a supporter by purchasing a workout for $12. Or you become a super fan by purchasing a bundle for $19. I don't want to take advertising dollars. I want this to be a listener-supported podcast. By supporting the All About Fitness podcast, and not only do you get great episodes, I try to put out four to five full-length interviews each month, but by supporting the podcast, you'll get access to exclusive content that'll help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Thanks for your time. Now let's get back to the interview. So, Last, uh, sorry, sorry, but real quick, I want to come. I don't want to go into much, so I'll stop yeah, those two. Yeah, so I want to come back to, to the first thing you mentioned on resting metabolism because RMR. And, and when I've heard you speak about this, it, and you threw out the numbers about the average caloric intake, so we'll take those one at a time. Sure. But resting metabolic, resting metabolic rate is the amount of energy that people expend during the day during their normal daily process, correct? And, and can you break that down for us, what RMR is involved just in terms sure. of resting and, um, and physical quite, activity? 
Yeah, so wow. it's quite. So when we look at this, you know, I call it the pie chart. I look at, you know, all the energy you burn in a day, and we kind of break it out into three basic categories. The biggest piece of the pie, as I mentioned, is your resting metabolic rate. Now, that is the energy that's just needed to keep you alive. So, for example, you wake up tomorrow morning, and I say, Pete, all you're going to do is sit yourself in a chair. You're going to face the wall. You're not going to eat. You're not going to move. You're not going to watch TV. You're not going to listen to music. You're not going to engage in conversation. It's just that energy needed to keep you alive. That's, as I said, is the big piece of the pie. It's 60 to 75% of all the energy you burn in a day. The other two pieces of the pie, one is called the thermic effect of food. Now, this is the energy needed to chew food, to swallow food, to digest food, to absorb food, and to store food. And, and one, one second on that, because I want because this is something that, that I think people often overlook, and that's the reason why that, that, that it's recommended to eat high-fiber uh, carbohydrates versus like high glycemic carbohydrates, correct? Is that because that, of the thermic effect of food that if you're eating more kind of dense, natural, if you will, carbohydrates, higher in fiber, it, it your body has a more involved metabolic process to break that down. Is that correct? I just want to kind of take a it, quick, it, quick look at that. It is correct, but you also have to appreciate it's not, not significant because the reality is the thermic effect of food through the whole day is about 10% of your total calories. So think about it. If you were a 2,000-calorie eater, it would be 200 calories. Now, you're absolutely right. The cost of digesting carbohydrates ranges from about 7% of the energy value of the food to about 20% of the energy value of food. And it's only for about the first hour. So let's just say you ate 200 calories of food, you would use you, your thermic effect, your metabolism would be elevated for about the first hour to the cost of whatever it is. Fat is the most efficient because of fat's caloric density. As a percentage, it's the most efficient uh, food to absorb. So it only has about a 3% thermic effect. So in other words, of all the calories that you're burning, that you're consuming from fat, only about 3% is needed to digest, store and, and, you know, with fats. Carbs, you're right. It ranges from 7 to 20%. You're absolutely right. Fibrous foods have the highest cost because it does cost the body more to extract nutrients out of there and to basically pass the fiber through the intestinal tract. But again, these numbers aren't huge. If you want to look at what's the biggest number, it's protein. Protein's thermic effect is around 30%. Now, bases, it varies according to animal-based versus vegetable-based protein. But with the animal base, uh, with the uh, protein sources, 30% seems impressive. But I want to caution you: don't that doesn't justify running over to a high-protein diet because we're talking about elevating your metabolism by 30% for one hour. Now, your if you take that metabolism in your day, so I said your resting metabolic rate is 60 to 75% of your total calories. So I'm going to use 2,000 because it makes the math easy for my mind. Let's just say you were a 2,000 calorie burner in a day. That means your metabolism being 60 to 75 percent is about 1,200 to 1,500 calories. Now, divide that by 24 hours. That means your average metabolism in an hour is somewhere around 50 to 65 calories an hour. If I bump that by 30 percent, we're talking about 15 calories. That would be the difference of, you know, and say, well, I had three meals through the day. That's 45 calories. Is that insignificant? No, every calorie is significant. But you know, I'm not going to sell the farm on that because 45 calories is really nine minutes of walking. And, and you also have to consider that there's planning and preparation and food costs and health issues and everything associated with, you know, going to high protein diets or carb restricted diets. And so these things all have to be factored. But you are right. Going back to your original question, you are right that fiber, apart from the myriad of health benefits, it's certainly going to do what bump a little bit of that thermic effect. And we're going to take a calorie everywhere we can. I say you beg, borrow, steal a calorie from every part of the body that you can. Okay. What remains is that last part, which is called TEPA. That means thermic effect of physical activity. Now, that's the energy that you expend 
kind of going back to your original point that you would be doing through your activities of daily living. So this could be your trip to the gym. It could be you, you know, walking around, walking to the grocery store, taking your pet out for a walk, walking a flight of stairs. And it is also what we call NEAT, this word NEAT that has become kind of moved to the forefront of weight loss. NEAT is an acronym that stands for Non-Exercise Activity Thermogenesis. And it really means generating heat, which is, means expending calories, by doing just anything simple like standing, fidgeting, all right? The stuff that doesn't constitute movement or exercise. Wait, just one second on that, Fabio, because I want to I hold on that for a second because that's a, that's a huge point for listeners out there. What, what, what we're talking about isn't necessarily going to a gym and doing exercise, but it's about the, fit, the daily activity that you do on a daily basis. Like, for example, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it standing up, you have you're gonna there's gonna be a higher energy cost and to kind of add to this what Fabio is saying what I often teach in lectures is that we spend about five five calories of energy to consume one liter of oxygen and that that's kind of how we look at, at energy consumption is is we use oxygen to fuel fuel muscle activity and our body will expend to go back to, to, to Fabio's point earlier if we want to get a calorie of energy anywhere we can if we increase oxygen consumption then we can increase caloric expenditure so if you look at anything that you do during your day of say okay you know if i'm taking an elevator versus walking up three flights of stairs where am i going to consume more oxygen what's going to cause more muscle activity that's where we can have a significant impact on the daily on the daily use so i just want to kind of bring that in there about looking at it from a different point of view because that's kind of going down a different route that i want to kind of stay away from but i want to talk about or get people in that mindset of what can i do to increase oxygen consumption in a normal activity in my daily routine so sure yeah get back good point yeah but then, then so you're talking about you're talking about tipa and you're talking about neat what are some other examples of how people can can increase activity well you know here's the thing i mean okay so if we just look at thermic effect of food so obviously metabolism well let's just start with the biggest piece of the pie you know unfortunately we have things that slow down our metabolism it's called aging so with every decade of of aging our metabolism slows down about two percent you know so i mean again you might say well that doesn't seem like much but that could be 40 calories a day which over a period of a year can become significant it's a it's a handful of pounds right it could be four pounds four to five pounds so this all adds up the other thing that is you know obviously you know muscle mass so as we age we undergo sarcopenia and so as as that muscle mass is lost there's less muscle mass to maintain so metabolism slows down. So probably the most effective thing you can do to rev your engine is probably build muscle mass, number one, and number two, not starve yourself. So those are probably the two biggest um, attributes to preserving or boosting resting metabolic rate. When it comes to thermic effect of food, we've seen a lot of studies. People say, what if I eat, you know, if there's a, a thermic effect that happens after I eat, what if I ate, say, three meals versus five meals? If I ate more frequent meals, would that increase my thermic effect of food. The interesting, some research out there has showed that it doesn't really come down to the number of meals, but it comes down to the caloric quantity consumed in a day. In other words, if they, they did studies where they took isocaloric diets, in other words, 2,000 calories uh, eaten three times a day versus five times a day, and it didn't make a difference. Now, from a standpoint of health, blood sugar level, controlling appetite, huge implications. But from a standpoint of just changing a thermic effect of food, it doesn't make that much of a difference. <clears throat> the composition of your meal, as I said, makes a small difference. You know, there are spicy foods like your cayenne peppers and your, you know, things of that nature that can certainly boost your metabolism by, you know, maybe 20% for the subsequent hour after you've eaten. But again, you know, you've, you've all experienced that. You get the sweats and everything. 
uh, you know, is it really worth it to get seven to 10 calories to have to deal with what you have to go through in the bathroom, your bowel movements the next day? I don't know. I don't think that's the way to go. <laughs> or or yeah. shoving ice in your mouth to, uh, to, exactly. to accommodate for an the jalapeno study, peppers. Yeah. An interesting study that was done in 2007 looked at getting people to actually drink water on empty stomachs. So in other words, between the meals, they had them drinking, you know, 500 ml bottles. And they had them drinking several of these through the day. And they actually measured, yeah, good job. They actually measured the the thermic effect because water, first of all, if it's drunk at a, at a slightly cooler temperature, energy has to be expended to warm that, that 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 fluid back up. But more importantly, water dilutes your blood. And so your body has to actually initiate a system of reabsorbing filtrate to reestablish blood concentration. And when they extrapolated that out to the year, these researchers found that it amounted to a total of about five pounds of energy in a year. So drinking that, you know, two to three of those bottles in a daily basis between meals, yes, it does have an effect on helping control your appetite and things of that nature. It's also important for hydration, which most of us are underhydrated, but it can have a little bit of a caloric effect. So there are small things you can do from thermic effect, but the big player that we're seeing is really where we're looking at in this concept of TEPA. And I said, you know, I always tell people, don't ask people to do more. I mean, I think you and I can both attest to this. I don't have an extra hour in my day. I wish I did. So asking me to go to the gym for another hour in the day, it's just not going to happen. So the mindset should be don't try and find time to do more things. Change the way you do the things you do. And that's just a, a retraining your mind mentality. And this goes back to this neat concept. The biggest game changer that we're seeing when you look at some of the research that's coming out in terms of weight loss and longevity is simply movement, getting up and moving around. And it starts with getting out of the chair. So I'm not asking you to stand. I'm not asking people to move around. I'm saying that would be great. Let's start with simple. Look at your day. And I, I do what's called a metabolic profile. I say, just write down what your typical day looks like and just go through. So, you know, midnight to 6 a.m. I'm sleeping, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. I'm getting ready for work. And you just kind of go through the day and then just start to identify become more self-aware of the areas where you spend a lot of time seated and, re and in reclining positions. And then ask yourself, can you change the way you do the things you do in those positions? In other words, if I'm checking emails, talking, listening to this podcast, you know, texting my friends, can I do that standing versus sitting? And here's, a, here's the example I always use to drive the message home. Take the average American woman. She now sits for over 13 hours a day. If I can get her to change the way she does things, not asking her to do more things, but take two of her hours of the day and get her to do those activities she ordinarily does seated and do them standing. I take that and I do it five days a week. So I'm looking at a traditional work week for a working woman, 50 weeks of the year. Pete, what that amounts to is 10 pounds in the year. That's 10 pounds of energy difference. Like you were talking about that liter and five calories. That's what it amounts to over a period of a year. So I'm not asking her to find more time to go to the gym because that's the equivalent 10 pounds is the equivalent of about 120 trips to the gym if you're burning around 300 calories. So the question is, ask the person, what do you, what, I mean, I, I would love the person to exercise, but I also have to be realistic. It starts with self-efficacy. What can you do? And most people will opt for, hey, I can probably find ways to do the things I do differently. And I let's start with standing. And then they start to see some change. And that's, you know, the wheel rolling and it gains momentum. And then that could be the, 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 you know, the linchpin or the springboard that launches them into kind of seeing some visible changes that builds the self-efficacy, then leads them to driving, you know, driving them consistently into the gym to be more active and adopting a healthy lifestyle, which is ultimately what we're all, that's our end game for everyone. And, and so with that, I think, you know, when we're looking at, you know, when we're looking at, at weight loss, we're looking at fat loss, then it's really important to look at the holistic picture. It's not just going to the gym and working harder. And we sure. talked about that in our discussion on high intensity interval training. 
but it, it's about adopting this mindset of how can I, if I'm awake, you know, 18 hours, you know, if I'm awake 17, 18 hours in a day, how can I add more just regular activity to that time so that I'm spending more time on my feet, I'm spending more time moving and less time in a seated position. Now, real quick, just briefly, what happens if somebody stays sedentary for too long? Like what is, what is LPL, what is lipoprotein lipase and how's that yeah. affected by being seated too long? Sure. And I want to just piggyback on one. You made a great point there about moving around. And the other thing to consider is that, you know, other people always consider the option of a diet. The problem with a diet is that you're not just going to lose fat mass. You're going to lose mass, but about 31% of what you lose will be muscle tissue. Well, there goes your metabolism. There goes your functionality. So the movement part of it is really the game changer because that can minimize the loss of muscle tissue. I mean, obviously, we'd love to build and preserve muscle tissue as best we can. But what we want to do is to encourage movement as the basis for weight loss rather than dieting because that really helps preserve muscle tissue and that'll preserve metabolism. I wanted to piggyback because you made that mention. I think it was a great point you made there. Okay, going back to your LPL, lipoprotein lipase. So we have these two you know, very important enzymes that are part of a very intricate system. And lipoprotein lipase really serves one role and the role it does, it, it, it kind of positions itself outside of a cell, both a muscle cell and a fat cell. And what it does, it it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a, a doorman saying, come on in. You know, it invites any, you know, fat fats floating, you know, triglycerides, you know, uh, you know, HDLs, LDLs, anything that's floating through the blood, it invites the fat components into the cell, you know, for storage or for utilization. Now, what we found, and, you know, lipoprotein lipase is a very quintessential enzyme because what we found with this enzyme is that its activity is very different regionally through the body. So we don't, you know, everyone's chasing this, this, this myth of spot reduction. And if we could control this enzyme, we may be able to find some solution in spot reduction. But more importantly, what this enzyme does, it's responsible for moving fats into the cell. Now, for someone who's active, it builds more regional activity in the muscle cells, which means it's more likely to promote fat, fat uptake into the muscle cells rather than into the fat cells for storage. Now, when someone becomes sedentary, and there was a big study that was done, a landmark study that was done on this looking at, you know, 17,000 people that were followed for 12 years. And one of the big takeaways they found is that, that, that when people were sedentary, that enzyme became less active at muscle cells and more active in the fat cells. In other words, promoting more fat deposition into the fat cells. So real quick, real quick on that. Yeah. Because fat in a muscle is used for energy, correct? If, if yes, fat is correct. stored in a muscle, then the mitochondria of the cell will convert that fat through, what is it, the citric acid cycle now? Yes, and so cycle, that, yes. And so it's using that. So fat is not necessarily a bad word in that case, but it's used for energy. You have to remember that fat is basically, when we're storing it or using it in the body, we either store it or use it for energy. And when Correct. it's stored in a fat cell, it's stored for energy. When it's stored for potential energy, when it's in it, when it's in a muscle cell, it's more likely to be used for kinetic energy. Is that correct? Correct. Very correct. Good way of putting it. Yes. Okay. So, so obviously, what the study showed is that it doesn't have to be exercise. Just being mo moving, moving around, can actually help maintain that enzyme's activity levels at the muscle cell. Now, you can't talk about LPL without talking about hormones, and because obviously. You know these these enzymes are regulated to some degree by hormones so obviously cortisol comes into play now and so cortisol can really direct lpl activity right and so we find that cortisol tends to be more active with receptors in the visceral region of the body and so when we have a 
a surplus of fat and you've got stress where your cortisol levels are elevated, you're more likely to do what? Deposit fat into those areas. So the cortisol is going to have a bit of an effect, act, you know, stimulating that enzyme in the visceral fat, which is the fat around your tissue in the abdominal region. So that not only is maybe unsightly, but it's also unhealthy. And so, you know, lipoprotein lipase doesn't act, you know, alone as a standalone. It has this regional activity. It's the ultimate, you know, determinant of what goes into cells, but its activity levels are influenced by lifestyle and hormones. And ultimately, that comes down to how you live your life. And so, yes. and my understanding is that if you spend too much time sedentary, one thing is you're you're producing less LPL, and two is you're you're promoting more fat storage in the in the fat cells itself than in actually utilizing fat as, as a consistent source of energy. Uh, you know, I'm not sure about the levels of LPL. I just know about the re the receptor sensitivity, much like insulin. Yeah. Um, the regional activity of of LPL diminishes at the muscle cell level and it actually elevates itself at the fat cell level, especially your visceral abdominal fat. And so what, are, what I want to do is, is do a different um, podcast with you, uh, you know, probably a few weeks from now or, uh, you know, maybe in a month or two about um, all the specific hormones because we're, we're knocking on the door of that. And that itself is a whole, I mean, you and I both know that, that you know, a lot of times, you know, nobody walks into the gym on a Monday saying, okay, today's going to be my testosterone day or today's going to be my growth hormone day. But we know, you and I both understand that anything we do that affects the physiology of our body is really changed the biochemical levels of how hormones react on the cells. But let's, sure. come, let's come back to, because that's, that's, a, that's a very important thing. Let's, yeah. come, let's come back and stay focused on fat loss and weight loss. So when it comes down to it, um, you know, to stay just on the hormones for a second, what are the hormones involved with fat storage and fat utilization? Because I know <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned cortisol and, and there's insulin. Cortisol and insulin, cortisol, insulin, and glucagon, we'll stay focused on those three. I know are very involved with that. And then from there, what I want to do is, is how do we control those levels via um, some, some, simple, some sure. simple dietary tips and some simple activity tips? Sure. And we'll see if we're about to keep that, Bruce, because I don't want to keep, keep your, you too much longer. Um, and we'll save some of the deeper dive into the muscle building hormones uh, for yeah. a later date. But let's take a look at, um, at, at insulin, at, at cortisol, and glucagon. Sure. You talked about cortisol a little bit, but what role does it play in terms of energy production? Okay, well... Uh... You know, this is why we call it the hormonal matrix, because it is a bit of a mess. Um, you know, just to let you know, there is no, you know, one hormone is influenced by others and influences other hormones. This is a, a very tangled web. So, um, you know, just to give you an example, cortisol can influence a myriad of different hormones. And we talk about human growth hormone. Sorry, I'm just going to cut in here one more time. I'll be very brief. I want to remind you that I'm doing HIT at home workouts. HIT is high-intensity interval training. These are 30-minute workouts all you need is a set of dumbbells, a little bit of space, and a device that can connect to the internet. And you can join me on Wednesdays and Fridays at 12 noon Pacific. That's Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, other times in between or in other time zones. I broadcast live. It's a great workout. Just about 30 minutes. You'll get strength training, core conditioning, and, of course, high-intensity interval training. If you work hard, I guarantee you'll be burning more than 300 calories in 30 minutes. That's hit at home exclusively on Homeroom Fit, Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 noon Pacific. There's a link down below in the show notes. You already listened to the podcast. Now come join me for a workout and we can sweat together.
Let's get back to the interview. It's influenced by cortisol. So well, is well, testosterone. Well, let's stay on this. I just yeah, wanna, I just, before before yeah. we go into this, because this is where I think, Fabio, we talked earlier about misinformation. This is where I think a lot of common misinformation gets communicated out to the general public is because somebody might, an article, somebody writing an article is very well intentioned, but they see one component of what cortisol does, or they see one component of what growth hormone does. And, and as an author, I'm guilty of this. We tend to focus on that a little bit too much without putting it into the whole play because you can't just you cannot talk about cortisol without talking about growth hormone without talking about mechanical growth factor without talking about all the myriad sure. of other things going on in the body so i want to make listeners well aware of that that when we're talking about this we're talking about the role of each hormone but they don't work independently and nothing in the body works independently everything is part of a complex system and just influencing one component of that can't change everything but it's important to be mindful of that whole matrix so you can understand how, how it all comes together. But I think it's, I just wanted to kind of highlight that before we go any further yeah, into cortisol. Yeah, that's a great point to make. Okay, so let's just look at the body by its biological design. So we have a simple design of the human body. Our ancestors lived by a simple, simple uh, you know, sort of a, a philosophy. It was f feast or famine, right? When they had food, the body enjoyed that food we built up energy reserves but then we also had to do what be able to preserve energy for the days when we had famine so that is the role of insulin insulin is the quintessential anabolic hormone when it comes to eating insulin's job is to promote the uptake of nutrients into the cell not to be used necessarily but ideally to be stored and it's responsible for the uptake of glucose amino acids Fats, it stimulates all those pathways that build the storage forms and, of course, protein storage forms, muscle tissue. So insulin is obviously directly affected by how you eat and what you eat, all right? Now, cortisol is a very unique hormone, and I think cortisol is actually a very fascinating hormone because when we have a fight-or-flight response, and again, so when the body has a fight-or-flight response, the nervous system is the first to respond, react. And if you think about it, what is our nervous system and our hormonal systems? They're simply communication systems. One of them is rapid acting, like fractions of a second, nervous system. One of them is slow acting, i.e. hormones that could take minutes to be released into circulation. But they, they work as a kind of a, as a one-two punch. And the nervous system actually activates the hormonal system. So when we have a fight or flight response, we put into circulation cortisol. Now cortisol has many roles. It is a catabolic hormone, but that's not all it does. It's also an anti, it's a, also an anti-inflammatory. We hear people taking a, you know, a cortisone shot. It's also immunosuppressant. We hear people taking prednisone. These are all, you know, obviously drugs that mimic the function of cortisol in the body. So cortisol has a tremendous variety of, of uses in the body. Now, typically what ends up happening is the, if there is some sort of, you know, stress or disturbance, cortisol gets released. Cortisol is actually there, you know, to actually help shut off acute inflammation. Cortisol is there to help the breakdown of storing carbohydrates, preserving carbohydrates, especially when our liver glycogen stores, and this is a very big misconception that a lot of people have. A lot of people think that in the morning when I'm fasted, it's my muscle glycogen stores that are low. And that's in fact rarely ever true because I would say this, it's practically impossible for the average adult to ever deplete their muscle glycogen. There's only two ways you can do that. You either are doing exhaustive exercise, like three, four hours of endurance training. Trust me, 60 to 90 minutes of you know, kind of high intensity resistance training in the gym is not going to deplete your glycogen whatsoever. Or you're someone who's just not eating carbs, period. Those people will have depleted muscle glycogen. Unfortunately, what happens on a daily basis is your liver glycogen, which is a much smaller tank, gets depleted on a regular basis. Why? Because 
When carbohydrates are put into the muscle cells, they're trapped. They cannot get out. It is the liver glycogen that is responsible for preserving blood sugar. And that's where cortisol has a very, very important role. Because in the morning, when people talk about doing fasted cardio, and I'm not endorsing that by any means, the whole idea is that, oh, you're burning more fat, that's why you should do your fasted cardio. There is some truth to that, not the absolute truth, but there is some truth to that. It's because of the fact that the body has sensed that that liver tank is becoming near empty or becoming low, and therefore we need to preserve. And the body is all about self-preservation. So the elevation of cortisol will then suppress the utilization of carbohydrates into the energy pathways and favor more fats. And that's the whole theory built around you know, fasted cardio. But that's not all cortisol does. Cortisol also promotes the manufacture of carbohydrates. We call that gluconeogenesis. Now that have, unfortunately comes from protein sources. So that's another downside of cortisol. So cortisol, very unique hormone, has a tremendous you know, uh, sort of uh, array of kind of functions in the body. But from a standpoint of fat metabolism, yes. Insulin stores fat. Cortisol burns fat, all right? Promotes the burning of fat. But not in a short term, fine. But in a long term, i.e. maintaining stress levels by either starving yourself, not managing your life stress, the sustained elevated levels of cortisol are very damaging to the body. Right, so it's not a good thing. It's good in short-term dosages, like your exercise bout. But now you talked about glucagon. Glucagon is a hormone that obviously is really involved in the functionality of again. Unlike insulin, that says, "Hey, I store." Glucagon does the exact opposite. Glucagon takes glycogen that's stored and in the liver and helps break it down. It also helps break down stored fats, and it also helps do what promote a little bit of protein uh, synthesis. So glucagon functions a lot like cortisol, but unlike cortisol that has system-wide you know kind of what we call a a systematic effect a systematic effect around the entire body and it has a multitude of different effects glucagon is really limited to what it does in the liver but it does very similar things to what cortisol does in fact when someone goes into an exercise bout we see elevated levels of glucagon elevated levels of cortisol at the initial onset of the stress so in life if i come back and you say you asked that you said i want to finish off with one thing and i'll just kind of preamble this People ask me, like, what can I do about my hormones? I mean, obviously, there's a million things that can be done medically. But when I look at lifestyle, I always tell people it's a domino effect. If I can control insulin and if I can control cortisol, you now set yourself on the path for kind of creating balance across the entire hormonal matrix. And those are my the two, to me, the most two, the two most important hormones that we can, that I, I, I target. Why? Because they're the two that we can have a huge influence on. By how you live your life. And so those can be controlled via, I mean, we look at nutrition, we look at dietary intake, and that's regulated in some of the timing. Um, we look at sleep. I mean, that's why sleep has been so important, why so many people are making such an emphasis on sleep. And the other component of it is, as we talked about in our previous podcast, is about recovery, allowing time for your body to recover. Because we'll stay with cortisol for a second. If we're overtrained, meaning we're going out and we're doing four or five, six days a week of, of moderate to high intensity exercise where we fatigue ourselves, that elevated cortisol, does that now become kind of a, a inhibiting? Does it, does it limit our fat reduction? And how so? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so just from a standpoint of uh, you know, continuing with what with your with your statements there, you know, so you know, sleep recovery. You have to understand one thing: your body doesn't know the difference between physiological stress and psychological stress or psycho-emotional stress. The body doesn't care, and nor should it. It is simply the perception of disruption of homeostasis. So, and when that happens, it's simply the magnitude that determines the amount of hormone released. And of course, there is an adaptation that happens out of that too. But 
what happens is if you have, you know, just a workout and then the rest of your day you do everything right, like you just mentioned, you're alluding to eating right, getting your recovery, getting a rest, not overtraining, then the hormones do what? They go back to normal. Homeostasis is reestablished. You know, it takes a little bit of time, but that's that's the whole point by recovery. And I think that's becoming the most important. I think you and I both agree on this, how important and how how undervalued recovery is. And I think that should be a focus in 2017 for a lot of people is don't just focus on the training, focus on the recovery. What are you doing outside to help the person restore their body to be ready for the next workout? But let's go back to your point. Let's say I am overtraining. I'm pushing the, you know, I'm pushing, I'm redlining myself all day long. Now, over time, what's going to happen is my body isn't recovering. So that elevated or sustained um, elevated levels of cortisol are going to start to create some horrible effects. Number one, from a a, a immune response system. So what happens is when you we the body senses disruption, you know, we express genes that obviously activate these inflammatory proteins called cytokines and things like that. And these cytokines bring about a quick inflammatory response, and that's a good thing. So acute inflammation helps the body survive. And then what cortisol does is actually helps do what? Turn off that inflammatory response. So we stop making those, those, um, you know, those inflammatory agents. And that's the shutting off of acute inflammation. That's all a healthy process. But the problem is, if you, much like insulin, if you keep cortisol in circulation for too long of a period of time, those receptors that cortisol binds to to shut off inflammation become resistant to cortisol. So much like with insulin, you develop a little bit of that resistance and there is your onset of chronic inflammation. And you know what happens once you go down the path of chronic inflammation. So there's just one part, all right? Secondly, you look at it from a standpoint of metabolism. So one of the key hormones that we look at in terms of revving our engine is the hormones coming out of the thyroid gland, so T3 and T4. Well, unfortunately, they are stimulated by what we call a tropic hormone coming out of the brain called thyroid-stimulating hormone. Thyroid-stimulating hormone right, is the hormone that is released and it goes to the thyroid gland and it turns on the production of T3, T4 and that revs your engine. Cortisol, remaining in circulation, will shut down the production of thyroid-stimulating hormone. In essence, it's going to slow down your metabolism. I alluded to this earlier when I said that starving yourself can actually slow down your metabolism. Think of something else. Human growth hormone. Everyone talks about human growth hormone and how wonderful it is. You know, we know as adults we don't have much of it. Everyone talks about, oh, we get a little bit of the spike of human growth hormone after a workout. Yeah, it's a spike. It's maybe a 23-fold spike of nothing. So the surges in growth hormone that we see are outside of medicine, in other words, injections and things like that. The natural spikes in human growth hormone we see are small during the day and small at night. We get an elevation of human growth hormone while we're sleeping, right, to help with the repair process. But even that, that hormone is regulated out of the brain by two hormones called somatostatin and somatocrinin. And so these hormones work to do what? Turn on and turn off the release of growth hormone. Well, guess what? Cortisol can influence you know, those hormones and shut off the production of human growth hormone. And this list is endless. We talk about testosterone, estrogen. Remember, yeah. estrogen is involved in appetite control. We can suppress that. Then you talk about the two big appetite hormones, and there's actually a third one that I like, but people talk about leptin and ghrelin. Well, leptin is what gets released from fat cells about, you know, maybe about 20 minutes after we eat, and it goes to the brain and says, hey, let's shut off the desire to eat. So it controls our eating it's to prevent us from overeating. Well, cortisol sustained can actually do what? Make you more resistant to leptin, which means you don't really turn off that desire to eat. On the flip side of it, you've got ghrelin. Ghrelin's a hormone that stimulates our appetite and reminds us to eat so we don't starve. Well, flip side here, elevated cortisol can actually stimulate greater sensitivity to 
ghrelin. So you can see this list, Pete, goes on and on and on. Well, it comes back to that concept of there is no, you cannot isolate, it's, it's not really possible to isolate one hormone and say, this is the one we should focus on. Yeah. But I want to, on real quick, that is one of the reasons why I think some of the interesting research I saw this past year and last year and a half was that people who are overtired have a tendency to overeat very similar to, I mean, they equated it to, to using marijuana about somebody who is, is getting a suboptimal sleep, like six hours, five hours or, or less a night. Sure. They're going to be eating more because of this imbalance between, um, it sounds like leptin and cortisol. Is that is that accurate? I mean, that's possible too. I mean, obviously the other, the other, the other issue that's been attributed to overeating with people that don't sleep much is they've got more waking hours, more idle time to do what? Put food in their face, put food in their mouth. So yeah. I think there is a, there's definitely a biological um, element involved there, but I think there's also a, a, you know, a lifestyle element involved, but yeah, yeah you're absolutely true. Definitely. And, and, and so we're, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I mean, this is, I do, we are going to have a different conversation, Fab, about, um, sure. about hormones. Cause I really think, um, you know that, that that people don't understand the role that all the hormones play in controlling the physiological adaptations. And now, just to reiterate that that he's not using notes. I haven't seen him refer to his notes once during our conversation. So everything that he's been he's been talking about is straight from um, from the top of his head. That's why I think he's such a, an awesome resource for those of us that want to learn more about how exercise affects the body. So coming down to it, looking at weight loss and we're looking at fat loss. What are three things? Like let's break it down to three things that people should be focused on on a kind of a, a day-to-day basis or how should we change their habits? Because I want to talk, you know, just kind of be able to boil it down to, you know, we've talked a little bit about physical activity, but what are three things that people should be paying attention to to kind of initiate the fat loss and weight loss component of, of their lifestyle? Okay. I mean, apart from the obvious things like, you know, realizing that, you know, massive weight loss overnight is not possible and all that kind of stuff. If I was to give three kind of guidelines, I would say, number one, um, Appreciate the fact that your body is a very intricate biological entity, and if you can find ways to start controlling insulin, which we know we do that through nutritional intervention, and cortisol, which really means recovery, identifying stresses, managing stresses, I think that's a great place to start. So take inventory of your life, your your habits, your behavioral habits, your behavioral choices, and see if you can kind of clean that up. That would be one. Number two, I'd say also appreciate or embrace the reality that exercise as a standalone is not the solution to weight loss because what your only options there are, you know, patient, slow weight loss, or the complete opposite where you drive people into something that they are just not capable of doing, which means they're going to get hurt, they're going to disengage. And so I'd say don't try and do more, change the way you do things. So appreciate and embrace the reality that the frontier, the battleground of weight loss is going to really happen in what you do the other 16, 17 hours of the day and exercises must serve as a complement to that in terms of your weight loss initiatives. If there was a third thing, I would look at your diet. You know, Peter, I will say this. My mindset over the years has shifted. You know, I used to be a strong advocate, as probably most people were, of a, you know, a higher carb, healthy carbs, lower fat, you know, moderate protein diet. And I've kind of shifted my, my, my focus. I'm not a fan of dieting because I think dieting, from a biological standpoint, it has its innate problems, but I think from a psycho-emotional, like especially Gen Xs who have kids and family and job, trying to plan every day what you need to eat and how to do things, I don't think it works. I think intermittent fasting, like a 5-2 intermittent fasting, and again, we can talk about this at a different time, I think is a very a very feasible solution for, especially for Gen Xs. But I think I'm shifting my focus that I actually like, you know, I, and I look at pre-diabetes in America, I think that the carb intakes in America, when you consider most Americans are very sedentary, I think the carb intakes are too high. 
I'm in favor of reducing carbs. I'm not restricting carbs. I'm in favor of increasing healthy proteins, so your lean, healthy proteins, getting a little bit more vegetable-based protein in your diet. I, I love my animal-based proteins, but I think we need a balance there. I definitely think we should get more of the healthy fats in our diets, you know, especially when we're leading towards omega-3s and controlling our omega-6s. But I definitely think that our carb intakes for the average person who maybe exercises three times a week for 45 minutes you know, and then spends the rest of their life being sedentary, I think those carb intakes are problem by problem. And it's not glycemic index. It's glycemic load. You know, people think about, oh, spikes of insulin is a problem. That's not the only problem. What we're finding is that elevated insulin, even in small amounts that stays elevated for long periods of time, just think back to what I talked about, cortisol staying elevated, can also be a problem. That's called glycemic load. Insulin, glycemic index is insulin spikes. We're discovering now that glycemic loads are just as dangerous to this progress of prediabetes and, you know, and a lot of diseases. I think we should shift our diets a little bit to cutting back on carbs. I definitely have to say, I, you know, I don't mind people doing, you know, 40 to 45 percent of their carbs coming from diets. I know I have a thing called scope of practice and the dietary guidelines talk about 45 percent. This is where I think where a good dietitian can come in and, you know, 40 percent is definitely workable for the average American. That's plenty of carbs for them to do their 45-minute workouts three times a week. I definitely think we should shift our diet emphasis a little bit and maybe look at our macronutrients and, of course, the choices within those macronutrients. And that's and thanks for saying that about the registered dietitian because I was going to ask um, you know, or make the comment at the end that if people want to really work on their nutrition intake, it is much better to seek out a registered dietitian. And at the bottom at the show notes, I'll put a link to the American Dietetic Association because there's a huge difference between a registered dietitian and somebody who is just claiming to – do nutritional counseling. And, and I think um, you have to always, like with any professional that you hire, you have to always look at their their education, their credentials, and their background. But working with the right person can help you identify how you can plan, um, and I don't like to use the word diet as well, but how you can plan kind of a nutrition plan that's that's complementary to your lifestyle. Because I think, you know, the, the term I've, I've used or, and heard, um, you know, I, I talked to Sahelia Digsby, one of the RDs that we know um, through our, our speaking circuit, and she said diet is a short-term solution to a long-term issue. And yeah. it's really much better. It's a much better idea to have to develop an overall um, healthy eating plan and not think about a short-term diet. Now, yep. real quick, Fabio, what I want to – you don't hey. have – you're not here selling anything or anything like that. But no. you're speaking this year on the SCW circuit, correct? And what, are you te- and what are you teaching at SCW this year? Because I am going to add a link to that down. So if people want to go see Fabio speak, he actually does um, – a pre-conference workshop. Are you doing your, your lifestyle and weight management as a pre-conference? Or? No. So uh, just to, if I can, just to touch back, just so your readers uh, are just aware there, the American Dietetic Association is now called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Oh, geez. Okay. Because yeah. the, the ADA got confusing because there's American Disabilities Act. Yeah. So they've now called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Okay. And the registered dietitian is also changing their name to an RDN. Yeah. The registered that's... dietitian and nutritionist so they can take ownership of that name. Anyhow, so I just wanted to kind of make sure because no, there is a little bit of, no, I, little bit of perfect. confusion. I appreciate that. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, I know I stopped through there at one point and, and, and pointed out, you know, we were talking, we recorded this a couple years ago when I was using Skype. I've now moved on and used a different program. But Fabio was going through this information without referring to notes. And this is anytime I lecture, anytime I teach workshops, and a lot of times when I do the podcast, I have to have notes in front of me just to make sure I stay on track or make sure I'm accurate about what I'm saying. And Fabio really is. I mean, I, I said in the beginning, he is one of the smartest, absolutely most brilliant guys I've worked with. And he just knows how to apply this information. 
And that, that really, a lot of times we think of just physical activity being exercise. The textbook definition of exercise is purposeful movement. Exercise is purposeful movement. You have duration, you have intensity, you have frequency, how many times a week you do that. But NEAT is non-activity exercise thermogenesis. NEAT is all the extra movement you do throughout the day. Walking the dog, going up the stairs, taking out the trash. And there's a lot of research to show that that extra movement, that NEAT, can add up between maybe two and 400 calories a day. And keep in mind, the human body burns about 100 calories to work a mile, to walk a mile. Well, let me say that again. The human body burns about 100 calories to ambulate, walk a mile. If you run a mile in six minutes, you'll burn 100 calories a little bit quicker. If you walk a mile in 18 minutes, you're still going to burn about 100 calories. It's just going to be a little bit longer. But that's about, and there is some variance based on size, body mass, but that's a relatively accepted rule that the body burns about 100 calories to move a mile. So if you can add an extra two to 400 calories a day through stuff like taking stairs, doing the chores, running errands, that's like walking an extra two to four miles. And that can have a big impact. Now, if you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to learn how to design exercise programs, you can pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I've been teaching personal trainers for a little bit more than 15 years and in Smarter Workouts, I teach you what you need to know to be able to design your own exercise programs. There's a link down below in the show notes. But hopefully this gave you some insight into some myths. You know, that's always the thing, right? They're gym myths. And one of the things I try to do on the podcast are bring the academics, bring the, the white coats, as I call them, the lab guys. Well, Fabio's not really a researcher. He's a professor. Um, he doesn't really spend a lot of time in the lab. But he understands the information. But what I want to do is bring the people in to help you understand how your body responds to exercise. So you can do it the right way. I mean, there's some benefits to working in a fasted state due to elevated cortisol. However, too much exercise could elevate the cortisol too much. And, and here's the important thing, and we didn't talk about this in this episode, but cortisol, one of the things that cortisol will do, we talk about this, is that cortisol can metabolize protein to be used for fuel. But when that happens, when cortisol is elevated, it also suppresses your immune system. So right now, if you're doing, if working out, if we have the surge of COVID going on, I really encourage you to try to keep your workouts relatively brief and relatively moderate intensity. You know, if you are going to do a high intensity workout, keep it short. We want to do high intensity workouts of 30 minutes or less, and ideally of only a few minutes at a time. That's why I kind of gave you the breakdown of the classes I teach so you understand I'm applying the science. Because if you exercise for longer than 40, 45 minutes, especially at higher intensity, your body will spike cortisol, your body will metabolize protein for fuel, and it could also suppress the immune system. Nobody wants that right now. Anyway, this is a fabulous, it was a lot of fun to listen to this interview again as I was getting ready to re-release it. Hopefully you got a lot out of it. And, and really, I want you to have a wonderful holiday season. Have a good time. Be safe. Be healthy. Be careful. Just be mindful of, of, of the resurgence of COVID happening right now. Wear your masks. Practice the distancing. And, and look, this is going to get ugly, but it's going to be ugly before it gets better. So let's all work together and try to get through it together. With that, I want to say thank you for stopping by. And as always, I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness. 